Hey there. It's Captain Roger from the Grass Valley Corps of the Salvation Army here in beautiful Grass Valley, California. And uh, thank you so much for joining us for our online worship and study time. Now, I know that doesn't sound very exciting, but it is. You got to check this out. I'm going to start today with just a little story. By the way, grace and peace to each and every one of you this week. Hey, did you hear about the rabbit who rejected her boyfriend's marriage proposal? Yeah, it turned out she checked the engagement ring, found that it might have looked gold, but it wasn't 24 carats. Yeah, okay, rejection is a funny thing. I have seen several news stories over the last month about an increase in the number of Americans who are rejecting religion. With as many as 40% of people under the age of 60 not being willing to declare any kind of church affiliation. But when you read deeper than the headline... What you find is not a rejection of God or Jesus or of any of the other core faith beliefs. It's actually a rejection of organized religions more than anything. It isn't that people don't want to learn about and follow the way of Jesus so much as it is that they are sick of hearing about division and disunity in the mainline church denominations and between people who claim to be believers. It isn't Jesus they're rejecting. It's those who claim to be his followers who don't follow him. Overall, the percentage of people who identify as agnostics or atheists has stayed the same. Agnostics are, are those who don't know if there's a God or not, and atheists are at least mostly certain that there isn't, and the other 85 to 90% of us are certain that there is. But what, what is that God like? And how are we ever going to know if a teaching can be said to be true or not? Now, certainty is hard to come by in a world where things are constantly changing and moving and becoming new, but we have the means at hand to examine what we're taught and to see what we can or should do to pursue holiness in the world as it is. From there, we can decide what, if anything, we will do to support following the way. To help us get a grasp on this, let's look at a series of stops along the journey of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, beginning in Acts chapter 17. Uh, let me recap just a bit of what's gone before. Now, Paul, he was a leader among the Jewish people. He was destined for ever greater things. He was highly educated, whip smart, and ready to defend his traditional conservative positions against all comers. So much so that he had become begun a uh, systematic persecution of people who followed Jesus. Um, people who Paul had decided must must be following this, uh, what he would refer to as a false prophet. Now, Paul, he exercised the authority of his church to round up followers of the way that he could get hold of. He berated them for not following the traditional ways of his sect. He beat them for infractions against the codes he believed they should be living by. And he imprisoned and even killed those who would not turn their backs on Jesus. But then he met Jesus. And everything changed. See, once he realized Jesus was risen from the grave, Paul realized he needed to rethink everything about how he lived his life. Jesus being alive meant that he was who he said and what he said he was. And the words of his teaching then were a higher authority than the traditions and teachers that Paul had been relying on. If there was any conflict between what Paul had believed and Jesus then what Jesus said had to come first, because Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, God's King of Kings, who was to rule over all people and bring justice, true justice, to the world. Now, that 
all happened, that conversion happened about 15 years before the time we're reading about in Acts chapter 17. Over that time, there had been a distinct challenge. As two groups of, of followers of the way struggled to pull the believers to their way of thinking. On one side, we've got Paul, who was following the thinking of men like Philip the Evangelist, who had told an Ethiopian eunuch he was accepted by Jesus, and who had baptized him so he would be seen as a part of the body of believers. Philip, who had uh, been to Samaria to tell an entire tribe that had been considered unfaithful to the people of God, that in Jesus they were no longer set apart from their Israelite cousins, but they could turn and follow Jesus into the kingdom of God. And then the same message was carried on to Gentiles, um, non-Jews, people who had been considered unclean, unacceptable, rejected by God, and best left that way. But the believers who carried the message of Jesus into cities that had been considered enemy strongholds told them that in Christ there were no enemies, only fellow children of God. And the message of love that Jesus had preached and demonstrated then grew out across the Mediterranean world. Now, on the other side, from these pioneers in unconditional love were those who were willing to agree that even a foreigner could be accepted, but only if they converted first. These guys said that the love of Jesus was great and all, but if the new believers wanted to experience it for real, they needed to walk away from everything they had known and embrace the rules of the Mosaic Covenant first. They could only eat what was allowed to eat. They could only talk to whom it was allowed to talk to, only do the things that were allowed to do. And then they could say that they were accepted. Then they could be loved. Jesus would save them, but only after they had saved themselves. The debate, it was great, and it rocked the church before it even realized it was a church. And when the elders met to decide which path they should follow, they chose that of unconditional love over loving those who conformed to the way things had always been done. Now, in recent chapters, Paul and Silas, along with Timothy and... Uh, for a while, when they were near his hometown of Philippi, uh, they had Luke with them. These guys have brought the message, message of uh, acceptance and love to Europe for the first time. They crossed into Greece. They created a stir in Philippi, which led to many believers, uh, many followers of Jesus, right? Because when people heard the message of Jesus, they found it compelling. And they wanted to know and try and do more. But as much as this led to people becoming followers of Jesus, it also led to the group of travelers moving on, probably sooner than they would have gone on their own. They began with a hundred mile journey west along Via Ignatia, which is a Roman highway. It ran all the way across Macedonia. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 17 at verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, I'm going to stop for a second. Now, like I said, this is a hundred miles. It seems like they were on mules, maybe horses, so that they could make it across such a great distance in only three days. Amphipolis and Apollonia were good places to stop for a night along the caravan route, and Thessalonica was the provincial capital and a free city that was totally devoted to Rome and the imperial cult that worshipped the emperors as gods. All right. So now you know where we are. 
Let's go on with what's happening. Verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Now, if, if the translation you're reading finishes that last sentence by saying something about these women being the wives of prominent Greek men, then throw that translation out and go get a better one. Luke was very specifically mentioning that among the others who were brought to an understanding that Jesus was Lord, a number of women who were prominent members of the city's social and political structure also gave their allegiance to Christ at this time. It's not that there weren't men following, uh, becoming followers of the way. Uh, instead, this is another example of Luke's fascination and highlighting of the way that the early church was leaving behind the misogynistic ways that had dominated the world's thinking for a thousand years or more. In Jesus, as Paul would write to the churches in Galatia, there is no male and female. We're all one. All are equal. If you pay attention, you'll see Luke bring this up in subtle ways throughout all of his writing. Here, it's not so subtle, which is why I said if their translation doesn't highlight that, if it doesn't make that clear, if it tries to say that these women are important because of their husbands, you get rid of that and go with the one that actually uses Luke's intentional idea, right? Women were an important part of the Greco-Roman culture in Thessalonica. And the patronage and fellowship of these women was desirable. That's what Luke is trying to make sure we all understand. Now, the team was there for several weeks, maybe longer. And we know that they began to practice a trade which at least Paul had trained for, leatherworking, specifically tent making. Piecing together what we know from various parts of scripture, we can say that it seems they found a place to stay with another Jewish leather worker, a man named Jason, who also seems to have held some importance in the city. Maybe he was a successful merchant working in leather for those who traveled the trade roads. I mean, there's always a bridle to be mended, a leather strap to be replaced or retooled to make it tighten up, or tents that needed repair or replacement for people who lived in them more often than under a solid roof, Right. So he was there, he was doing well. Now, in fact, Paul's team, they were doing well also. They were doing so well in converting the Jewish faithful to Jesus, faithful, that it caught the notice of some who either didn't hear his message or who just chose to reject it out of hand because it wasn't the way things had been done before. As Luke describes it, take a look at verse 5. Other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. Ooh, these are serious charges. In Roman law, only Caesar was Lord, and declaring someone else to be Lord was punishable by some of the severest penalties. Not just for doing so, but also for people who harbored those who did so. 
and Thessalonia was a free city. They had special status. It was bestowed on them by the emperor. It involved being tax-free and giving them other privileges not generally available to cities in the empire. But their status wasn't guaranteed. If word went to the emperor that they were tolerating people who were even suggesting there could be a ruler other than Caesar... That could have repercussions for the city's status and huge penalties for anyone who was thought to have allowed such actions. Traveling philosophers, which is how Paul's group would have been viewed, they were stereotyped as being subversive souls who might spread rebellion. If they'd been arrested, they might have been lynched, so it was probably good that Jason was taken instead. But there was still an uproar over what was being said. Look, verse 8. When they heard the charges, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Now, like I said, it seems Jason had some status of his own, so he was released. But not without posting a financial bond against the travelers, demanding that he get them out of the city. In fact, they wanted him to get them out immediately. And that bond would have been held against him if they were to return. Look at verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Now, Berea was off the main highway. It was about uh, 50 miles southwest of it. So where Paul might have been trying to head towards Rome, he was redirected to a city that Cicero, a key Roman statesman at the time, said was off the beaten track. But being shunted off to a remote town in the Macedonian backwater was not going to stop Paul from spreading the gospel. Look at the second half of verse 10. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. What is it that these guys did that led to Luke telling us that they are of noble character? It isn't that they received the message instead of rejecting it. I mean, that's obviously a good thing, but that's not the only thing that happened here. It's not only that they received it that led to this statement that they were of noble character. What it is is because they examined what Paul taught. They compared it to what they knew. They discussed it. They looked up things that they weren't sure about, and they figured it out together. All right? I tell people again and again and again that blind faith is never advocated or commended in scripture, but most people don't believe me. It's true though. It never is. God gave you a brain and he expects that you're going to use it. Examine everything. That's what we're told. Test the things people teach you. Yes, even things I might teach you. Look things up for yourself. Don't believe me just because I put words on a video screen or read them out of an impressive looking book. God wants you to seek him out with an open mind, ready to discover him where he is, not just where someone else tells you you might find him. Truth needs to be earnestly and honestly sought. That's commendable. Now, our human impulse is to believe what supports the things we already believe, to um, only get information from people who are telling us what we want to hear. 
from doing things the way we've always done them. From demonizing the new because it's different from what we've always known. But that's not seeking truth, is it? It's just going along to get along. In Thessalonia, the city chose to reject the search for truth. Because it might have jeopardized their status as a free city. It might have cost them something to find the truth was something different than they wanted it to be. So they didn't even bother. Just put their hands over their ears and yelled, la, 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 until they could get those traveling preachers to move on. You wouldn't want to accidentally hear something that might make your brain start to work. But in Berea, they treated the message differently. They took it as something that someone was telling them was true. Now, they didn't just believe it, and they didn't just ignore it. They took what they were being offered, and they brought it into the lab to take it apart and see how it worked, and if it worked the way they were told. They held it up against the things that they knew and what they could examine and thought it through, and they decided if this was something that was worth experimenting with or not. And they decided that it was, or at least a great number of them did. Not everyone. No one was being forced to believe anything. No one was kept from learning for themselves or deciding for themselves. But wow, there's a lot of people who don't like others thinking for themselves, aren't there? I would usually make some sarcastic remark here about, well, it's great that never happens now, isn't it? But that's just my sadness coming out in a probably not very appropriate way. Banning books, refusing to share uncomfortable parts of history in classes that are supposed to be teaching a broad perspective on history, trying to shut down discussion of anything by, by divisiveness or by saying how horrible people who disagree are, that's just beyond sad. It's absolutely the opposite of what the Bereans are being commended for. Be a Berean. Don't be a Thessalonian, at least not in this respect. Use your brain to think with, not just to absorb another hour of reality TV or politically self-serving news shows. We may come to different conclusions, but we should be able to discuss that too and try to understand one another's point of view rather than adding to a pool of anger and invective that our world is already drowning in. Or we could do what some of the Thessalonians did when they heard that there were people being civil to one another in their discussion of new ideas there in Berea. Look at verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowd, stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Politically charged arguments never result in anything good, do they? They're all about scoring points against the other instead of about expanding your knowledge of others. They're, they're fruitless exercises, a waste of time and oxygen. They're thoughtless in that they do not involve examining or testing anything to see the truth of it. And the Bereans, who had come to believe in the message and way of Jesus, they didn't want to play that game. So they had Paul do exactly what Jesus did in these kind of situations. Just move on. Get out of the way of the spitting dragons coming to try and flame him. All right. And that's because the word of truth doesn't need us to defend it. It's either true or it isn't. If it's true, then it can't be blocked or hidden forever, no matter how someone might try. If it's not true, it won't survive long. 
lies need to be constantly refueled to keep going, which makes them like fires that eventually run out of forest to burn, and then they gutter and die. And I'd plan to get further in the scripture today, but we are out of time. And frankly, there's enough in what we've just gone through to keep us thinking and testing for some time to come. I think in a perfect world, we wouldn't reject anything without testing it first. And we wouldn't accept anything without putting it to the same kind of test. We wouldn't want to end up married to a rabbit who would provide us with anything less than 24 carats, right? God gave each of us a brain so we can use it. To do less is to refuse one of the greatest gifts our creator provided for us. Refusing to hear or test ideas is like extinguishing all the lights around us until we're just sitting in the dark alone, happy in our ignorance because there's no truth left to disturb us. Seek the truth. If you've got any thoughts, comments, dissensions, discussion you want to get into, post it in the comments here or email me and I'd love to talk it through with you. All right. Come see me in person. We'll sit down. We'll have a piece of pie. One last thing. Not the last, last thing, but for today, the last thing. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you have nothing to fear because God is already there. Go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you in the coming week. Catch you next time.